Welcome to Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed, a bi-weekly podcast in collaboration with the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, focusing on expert interviews that explore the insights, habits, and expertise of individuals both in and outside of medicine. My name is Dr. Kara King, and I am your host. And welcome back, everyone. We are already into our second week of June somehow, which means our annual SGS meeting is right around the corner. Our meeting was shifted to June this year and is scheduled from June 27th through the 30th in Palm Springs. Now this is a hybrid meeting, which means a lot of the courses and content are being offered virtually. So be sure to take a look at the agenda and register if you haven't already. Now today on our show, we have part two of our beloved Dr. Mark Walters. In this half of his interview, Dr. Walters will discuss maximizing educational impact during each case, incorporation of new technology, and his thoughts about integration of surgical coaching. We hope you enjoy. The other thing I heard you say is that even in easy cases, understanding that surgery isn't just technical skill, right? So maybe you're doing a very easy, I don't know, TVH, and the technical skill part may be fine, but there's so many other components to being a great surgeon, right? Like communication, stress management, ergonomics, efficiency, visualization, all those things that you can focus on even in easy cases to make it a really meaningful learning experience. I didn't mind doing the same kind of case over and over again. Sometimes my teachers did that too. They got really good at two or three cases. And with with vaginal surgery, it's mostly a planned surgery. And so partner would say, you need to do a surgeon's knot on this thing. But then I would explain to her why I thought that was. And then sometimes that made sense to her. And sometimes it just was a, just you have to pick one way to do something. But I like I like repetition. I like doing the same thing over and over again, because I think you do get better at it and you, I think, can get better at avoiding complications and maybe optimize the outcome of the operation. The operation is usually not going to be 100%, even if you do everyone perfectly, because you're dealing with the woman's body tissues, neuromuscular dysfunction that occurs, or the pain control that occurs for you. You might do something that looks fantastic, but she still has pain because her nerves and her pain sensors aren't normal, really. With me, it's it's a neuromuscular weakness and fascial damage. Well, you can't replace her nerves and muscles. And so all you can do is compensate for it. And then inherently, you're going to have some, well, complication rate, but inherently, you're going to have some sort of a failure rate. And you just want to optimize what can be done with that particular operation. And I thought repetition allowed me to do that. And I didn't say, oh, this is too easy for you. I think you just get better. Now, I will say from a teaching point of view, sometimes on a sort of an easy case, if there's three ways to do, um, let's say, a morselation, you know, it would there would be a coring technique and a wedging technique and, a you know, some other kind of technique. Um, and so I might say to them, if it looked like it was going to be a straightforward, which one of these haven't you done? And yeah. let's, let's do the one you haven't done so that you have, can have the full range of skills of different techniques to accomplish a goal. And then not only can you then use that in your teaching, but sometimes one fits better for another. And so I would do that. Um, you know, if what haven't you done to access the sacrospinous ligament? Have you done this this way or this way? 
And they would say, well, I've done them all posteriorly, but I haven't really done an anterior one, maybe one. And say, okay, well, this can go either way. Let's do the anterior one and try to make you better at that so that you'll have the full range of skills to access that that point. And um, let's make you better, even though this is um, sort of a relatively easy case. Love it. So checking in with your learner and sussing out where they are, right? right? And then... It also goes back to you, though, having that that master surgeon, a whole range of skills that you can accommodate their learning. And again, that's that sweet spot like you're talking about when you've been out a while and you're comfortable in multiple approaches. Right, right. I want to bring up technology a little bit. So, you know, you you like you mentioned, you operated for over 30 years. And during those 30 years, I'm sure many things came and went and then maybe came back again, right? Full circle of some techniques. Talk to me about what kind of changes did you see in technology throughout the course of your career? And how did you adapt them? Like, are you an early adapter or do you wait around, see how things pan out a little bit before adapting? What's your style? All right. Well, that that's a fun subject. And I wrote I wrote some things down. I've thought about that one a little bit. And Kara, uh, in my residency, my first laparoscopy case was an yeah. ectopic. I was an intern. I was an ectopic with a hemoperitoneum and we were using a Barry's needle with a drop technique. Yeah. You know that drop technique? <laughs> yes. and, then, and then we put a camera in and we had to put our eye on the light and then <laughs> try to operate, you know, in this red field. Oh my gosh. Um, and that was my first laparoscopy. And, and so you can't even imagine what a difference that is. You can't really do much. They really would just look in and then take it out and open them. (laughs) Call it laparoscopy. Get the 10 blade. So laparoscopy is, in my, probably the three biggest things for me would be imaging. The imaging revolution is amazing. And, you know, you couldn't even um, image pregnancies in my residency. Ultrasound was just starting. They were just experimenting with fetal monitoring. So as all that stuff was going on, but most of the older doctors at that time would just come in and put forceps on and deliver the babies. And uh, and with the imaging, that changed everything. And that goes all the way through to MRs and stuff that we have now. So, but imaging really wasn't my thing, but the that was a that was huge. Now the other huge thing is probably operative laparoscopy. When I started, it was really just diagnostic and the oncologists were opening everybody and, you know, full removal surgery, you know, the full adnexa would come out on ectopics. Hysterectomies with BSOs were frequently done at age 40 for fibroids. And, you know, the, the, the laparoscopy really did change things. It allowed you to get from a fairly morbid surgery to a less morbid surgery. But in the 90s, we didn't have the energy and the lighting that you have now. And so if if you go back and go back a little bit, in the 90s, people were operating laparoscopically, like guys like Dr. Falcone and Terry Van Kai from Sydney, Australia. And there were a few handful of people that were really good. But most of the time, you couldn't do a good hysterectomy because your lighting wasn't as good, but also your in, your 
insufflation wasn't as good, but really it was about energy, I think. You couldn't, you, you were having to do bipolar cautery and then cut and then deal with the bleeding alongside the ureter. It wasn't like at all like what you're doing now. And yeah. there wasn't a big intake of laparoscopic hysterectomies in tough cases until you went through the next generation of energy and coagulation and tissue sealing and stuff. And when I watch you operate now, it's completely different. What the fellows in MIS are learning now is completely different from what Dr. Falcone did in the 90s. So I think you guys have made a massive change in laparoscopy so that you can now do hysterectomies and they're almost easy cases for you. They're not easy cases at all, but you guys made them easy so that you can then do even harder things laparoscopically with the technology that you have. And in my specialty, the other big change was the mid-urethral slings. Really, the TVT was a game changer for urogynecologists. The, we, in the, in the 80s and 90s, we did anterior coporphy, open birches, and fascial slings. And most, Euro, most gynecologists didn't know how to do fascial slings. We did, we did know how to do birches, but they, had, they were open surgeries. And they were a day or two in the hospital, fully for a week or two. Now, our big mistake was extrapolating that to vaginal mesh for prolapse repairs. That really didn't work. And we, we as a specialty and all the generalists that did it didn't do a very good job at recognizing that very early. So we were doing that for 10 years, and the, the places like the Cleveland Clinic were seeing more and more complications, but they had to let the, the FDA had to get involved, just like the Power Morse later, the FDA had to get involved to, to open everybody's eyes onto what you can do. And so I think that in, in retrospect and in history, some innovations are great, but not all of them. I don't know if the robot is a, is really a game changer. I think to me, when I look, it's more about lighting and energy than it is about robot. I think, um, but, but that's not my specialty. So I can't really say for sure, but I, I think that the energy in, uh, was fantastic. And now the fourth one, I guess, would be hysteroscopy. When, when I started, there was no hysteroscopy and uh, right around, uh, 86 or 87, when I was a young attending, there was a gig, Terry Van Kyde. Have you met him? From no, I have not met Sydney. him. He's about my age. And he was in San Antonio right after a, a MIS fellowship in Belgium. And or in, he was Belgium and he went to France and he came to San Antonio. And they would allow you just to do whatever you thought was good as far as an innovation goes. So I was doing all my surgeries. Um, I was cystoscoping everybody, even though I wasn't allowed to. I was given privileges, but we weren't supposed to do it. I was teaching myself urodynamics. Well, he was in another lab teaching himself hysteroscopy. And he was, wow. he came up with the rollerball. He came up with the loop and did all sorts of really cool, innovative stuff. He even experimented with tissue plugging for sterilization that became big and then, then and sort of had to back off, right? But it was yes. thinking about innovations. 
hysteroscopy, you know, I think now office hysteroscopy was a huge innovation for people with bleeding and allowing them to avoid hysterectomies. Absolutely. And I find, just like you, this area of innovation and new technology and how to integrate that safely, really fascinating. So talk to me about, let's just say the mid-urethral sling, like you, like you spoke about. When that procedure came up, how did you integrate it into your practice? Did you practice on cadavers? Did you watch videos? Okay. How, do, how do you start doing a new procedure? Right. You asked me if I was an early adopter. Well, at the, yeah. at the Cleveland Clinic, I was an early adopter. At the Cleveland Clinic, you pretty much had to be an early adopter because you were giving lectures. And so if, for me, if I just got stale with what I was doing, then I could tell people what I was doing, but it wasn't anything new or what they hadn't heard before. So I needed to know about um, laparoscopic birch, for example, and I needed to know about sacral copexy and the different kinds of meshes, and I needed to know about how to access sacrospinous ligament and all the tools that were available to do that. So we would try pretty much everything. Sometimes under research trials, we were pretty good at tracking things on research trials, and then. When I go to a lecture, I would report that. I would say, okay, so I did 30 laparoscopic birches, and I think this is the best way to do it. But we almost had to teach ourselves at that time. There was no one to do it. So Tom Falcone and I would scrub together, and he would give me his laparoscopy skills, and I would show him the space of retius. And then we would say to ourselves, okay, if we have a cystotomy, we'll just open and do a birch and fix a cystotomy, and then and learn from how to avoid getting in the bladder. And then later on, you could start closing it endoscopically once you got better. So, and if you were on a tracking protocol, you could even feel good about the, this new work you were doing because you were tracking it, you're even reporting on your complications. And that's the way you're supposed to do things in surgical innovation. So with, with the, if there was a company involved, then the company frequently would take you someplace and have you scrub with someone, even in Europe. And that was real popular with the mesh thing. So a lot of guys had, had trips to, you know, Stockholm and Lyon and, and Madrid and stuff like this to learn surgery. But it wasn't a bad thing. It, it, it was maybe a little conflicted, but you still learned about how to do the surgeries. Some of the surgeries were game changers. I think mid-urethral slings, um, the TVT was a game changer. And I even think the TOT, the transopterior slings, was a game changer, although it's less popular now. It always seemed to be great when I was doing it. And we have good data saying that it was safe and effective and even in some ways even safer than retropubic sling. It, it, if you went someplace, though, and learned a new technique and it, and it wasn't as good as you thought it would be, you, it was up to you to try to f- – figure that out pretty quickly because the other countries, the innovators hadn't necessarily seen all the bad things yet. You had to be a little careful in your innovations to make sure that you were picking out what was a problem. Sometimes that's intuitive and sometimes it's not. And you have to make sure that you don't let your conflicts get in the way of your judgment, right? Lesson number three for today is don't let your conflicts get in the way of your judgment and that some very good doctors have not been as good at that as they could have been and they didn't really see the problems until later 
uh, because possibly they were a little conflicted. Incredibly important. And lesson number three, and that's like lesson number 457. You are full of wisdom. You are, we've learned so much from you today. You're always so humble. say is that when you adapt a new procedure or technology, it's really important to number one, load the boat, right? You scrubbed with Dr. Falcone, you know, you're, you're specialized in laparoscopy. I'm amazing with anatomy. Let's combine this. So loading the boat and then also tracking and reflecting, right? So tracking your complications, tracking your successes, and then taking the space to reflect on what went well and, and what needs to be improved. Right. And, and one really interesting aspect of this is I, I bring this up every podcast. My listeners are probably tired of me talking about this, but surgical coaching, <laughs> you know how much I love surgical coaching. This, I think there's a million spaces that surgical coaching could work, but I think this is a really brilliant space in that, you know, the Academy for Surgical Coaching, we're partnering with a lot of industry at this time. So when they unroll new products, there's this built-in, you know, coaching and space to reflect and action planning and how to safely incorporate this. Right. So- You've taught me that teaching and coaching are exactly the same thing. Now, you know, if you're teaching resident, and even if you're like coaching them using different style to coach, that's your job, right? When you're, when you're in a resident teaching program. But when you're dealing with other doctors that are in private practice, there's three or four models, all right? There's, there's a, some industry supported model where you go to a lab. Let's say there's no COVID, okay? You go to a lab, you go someplace, and then you have some some master surgeon that the company hires, and they and they show you how to do this thing, okay? That's that's teaching, right? That's not coaching, but you could follow it up and possibly do some coaching. But most of the time, they don't do that because the industry then would see them, and they're about getting them to use the device. Now, the other way is to try to get the surgeons to take it upon themselves to learn something. And that was in our Academy of Pelvic Surgery model, the IAPS, which we would go usually to Cincinnati, but it could have been some other places. And we would watch live surgery. We do video analysis. We do case counting. And then we go to the cadaver lab and we teach them certain operations. So we'd start a posterior repair and then make a hole in the rectum and teach them how to repair a proctotomy. Or we teach them the steps of a mid-urethral sling. We teach them how to access the sacrospinous ligament with the different tools involved and stay up later and look at their videotape. Now, in fairness, 10 years ago, no one was doing much videotaping except for their videos in academics. But now you have different ways to tape your own surgeries. In laparoscopy, it's super easy. But even in vaginal surgery, you could fairly easily set up a tripod and take your surgery, tape your surgery, and then you would show a peer or an expert, okay? And you say that you're peer-to-peer, but you're not. You're expert-to-peer, okay? And (laughs) it's still you're coaching. You're saying... You know, you might do better doing this and this and this. You want to keep your shoulders back. You want to set the table this height. You'll be more effective if um, if you uh, do this side first before this side if you're right-handed or whatever, right? Because you're coaching them. You're giving them suggestions 
and, and trying to make them better by learning from their own cases. And it would be beautiful to do that in vaginal surgery, but to figure out how to get them to send you their cases and then to take the time and then, frankly, who gets paid? Who pays for the work that you're doing in coaching? You and I have talked about that. That's a complicated thing because the doctors that are being coached don't necessarily want to pay a lot of money. I can understand that. They'll, it's a, you're a surgeon. You're not exactly a, a low price earner. You have to get compensated for your time. And so that whole thing is, is still, is still complicated. It's easy with residents because that's your job, right? But it's yes. harder with other private doctors. And I think that doctors, um, just like they pay for their kids' soccer coaches or kids' golf coaches, they don't have any problem spending a few thousand bucks. I think that with surgical coaching, they could, for, for a little bit of money, they could learn to get better uh, if they or learn some goals like I want to be better at operative hysteroscopy. And there's a number of ways to do that. And just a a few tips can make you better for the next five years, right? So I'm all for it, but but the business model becomes more difficult. There aren't that many surgeons just sitting around with nothing to do, right? No. I know. Absolutely. (laughs) We're at like 20 different hospitals fitting in like five more patients at 6.30 a.m. I know all the things. You're exactly right. But can I please tell you, you just, you just brought a tear to my eye about knowing the difference between coaching and teaching and mentoring and sponsoring. I love it. I'm so proud of you. You've listened to our discussions. It's so good. But you're right. I feel like a lot of us are, you know, a lot of us say, yeah, coaching is a great idea, but actually operationalizing it is a whole different thing, right? Like the financial aspect and the time aspect. And that is, that is where my niche is, where my passion is. I'm trying to figure all that out. But yeah, you bring up really good points. Okay, I have one last concluding question for you. Your career has been absolutely incredible on all levels, from a clinical perspective, from an education perspective, from a research perspective, and as, as well as your personal life, right? You have a few kids at home, right? You're married, you have a dog, you have a lot of responsibilities at home. When you think back about your career, in regard to family time or, you know, academic versus private, you know, the decisions that you've made throughout your career, is there anything that you would have done differently? So thinking back to the baby Mark Walters when you were a resident or fellow, is there anything that, that you would have done differently if you could have? I, I pretty much accomplished all the goals that I, that I set out for myself. And I think that that's what, if you want to say you're successful in life, it almost isn't about what you really did. It's what you wanted to do. And if you accomplish your goals, you can call yourself successful. Like I'll give you an example. Like I never really wrote grants and I never had a big, um, you know, NIH grant. And at the end, a few, a few people that had NIH grants would comment and say, well, you never had an NIH grant, but you still did pretty well. And they were serious because they they judged that as a as a measure of success. But I never really judged that as a measure of success because I didn't want to do grants. So it wasn't one of my goals. I was more rather do a book than a grant. 
And some people would thought the other way around. It's better to do a grant because that's what real academics do. But I thought the book was a better move for me. And I think in retrospect, the book was was great. I could have had a grant 10, 20 years ago, but the book is still with me. It's going to be in five, the fifth edition this year. So I think I was successful because I accomplished the goals that I chose, even though I wasn't a chairman and I didn't have an NIH grant and maybe some other things, but I did what I wanted to do in the ways that I wanted to do it. And I sort of leveled off at a certain level at section head, which I really liked, you know, section head and fellowship director were jobs I liked where a chairman, I thought maybe it wasn't going to be as fun or, or rewarding a job, even though it's at a higher level. You know, what you, those words resonate so deeply with me, especially about your successes, right? Like defining your own goals, not what people are putting on you as what your goals should be, right? Right. And that's right. so hard to sometimes differentiate, at least for me, right? So again, I think a lot of times in, in academia, we're expected to publish a ton and get these grants and do all the things that you're talking about. But if it doesn't bring you joy, then it can be really painful and not lead to job satisfaction and that may not be successful in your own mind. How did you go about defining that success? Like what, what type of soul searching did you do to know what your personal goals were? How did you find those? Well, I, I was always pretty good at goal setting. And so I would have my goals, you know, other than to stay married and to be involved with my kids. We used to have a joke and I don't know if it's politically correct or not, but it was the joke was that the best investment you can make is to stay married yes. because when you break up from an investment point of view, you give away a lot of the money in the family, you split it up. Right. So you do better <laughs> at the end if you just stay married. And so I, I really wanted to stay married, do a good job. I changed my wife is fantastic. <laughs> and, and, and then I wanted to be around with the kids and I, I did the best I could with that. I, I also had a goal like, you know, just to get, appropriate amount of financial success, but also to have, I set goals like saving for the kids' colleges early on. And I, and I did all that stuff. And, but the funny thing is once that's over, once the kids get through college, if you don't have a goal on top of that, you get a little bit lost, you know, what are you doing with your time now? And, and so to me, goal setting is important. At that time, I pretty much accomplished what I wanted to do. I wanted to become uh a good vaginal surgeon. I wanted to write a book. I wanted to be section head. I wanted to start a fellowship. And I did all those things. I wanted to, um, the other thing I think I did a nice job on was recruiting good talent. At the Cleveland Clinic, we have the ability to recruit good talent. And I think I was able to pick some fantastic people to work around me so that we had a, I think, a very successful group for a long time. And some of these people that we trained or that we hired when they were young are now chairman. You know, they went, went above whatever I ever did. And a number of them are. And I, I think that that's a credit to them and to choosing that I was able to choose future chair people, but also maybe we get some credit for stimulating them early on in their life so that they could then move forward with, uh, with those goals that they had. You are so humble in in your work. And, you know, you are the definition of the gold standard of a sponsor. Like you take people and you raise everybody else up around you. 
I'm being absolutely honest. Like the week that I moved here to Cleveland, I was 10 months pregnant, sweaty in my office. And I remember you just knocking on my door and saying, hey, Kara, can I come sit down? And you, I almost fell off my chair. Like I was, I, I didn't, you didn't even know who I was. And you instantly wanted to get to know me as a person. You pulled me into IAPS. You've pulled me into so many different things that you've been doing. You are truly someone that just being around you raises other people up. So thank you so much for all of that. You're so humble. All right. Well, thanks for letting me do this with you. And this has been awesome. <laughs> I've loved every second of it. Sure. Seeing your face has brought me so much joy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you again, Dr. Mark Walters. It's been an absolute pleasure to see you. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye. And that is all for this episode of Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed. Join us next week for Janet Dombrowski's incredible interview. She's an executive coach and will be giving our SGS to Lynn's lecture entitled Cultivating Resilience, the Power in Connection and Collaboration, which you will not want to miss. From all of us at the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, Thanks for listening.